Welcome to the Astute Macaron, a podcast where I finally read the classics and then bake about it. I'm Misty, and despite working in bookstores and libraries for more than a decade, I have managed to avoid reading most of the classics, largely because they are boring. I am an extremely amateur baker, meaning I probably won't poison you with my baked goods. Emphasis on the probably. This week, I read the 1927 Japanese classic Rashomon by Ryunosuke Akutagawa, and I baked, well, I made matcha milk. I'm sorry about the episode delay. My voice apparently gave up on this whole podcasting thing, but I'm trying to soldier on, and I hope the quality of my voice isn't so terrible that you have to stop listening. A quick content warning. Guys, this one is dark and weird. Seriously. There's rape and murder and just general assholery, and that's all in like 14 pages. So, yeesh. Please ignore any weird edits. Uh, I'm going to have to be editing out my coughs. So what I knew going in was actually not much. Uh, I did know that this was a Japanese classic. I knew that Akira Kurosawa, who was a famous um, Japanese director, had made a movie of the same name in the 50s. And I actually kind of thought it was going to be about samurai, but it is not. Um, People just really like to use the same imagery in their samurai movies, which is why I associate uh, the name Rashomon with samurai. Um, So... On to the summary. Uh, I did not know that Rashomon is actually a short story. It's only seven pages long. Uh, Seven extremely depressing pages. And uh, just so that this wouldn't be the shortest podcast ever, I also read the intro to this collection by Haruki Murakami and the 10-page story in a bamboo grove. Uh, Kurosawa took inspiration from both Rashomon and in a bamboo grove when he made the movie. I actually think the introduction is funnier, and we're going to end up needing some levity after these stories, so I'm going to save that for a little bit later. Um, So, oh boy, how to describe Rashomon? Uh, To set the story, let me read you the translator's note. Man means gate. The Rashomon, originally Rajoman, outer castle gate, was the great southern main entrance to Kyoto during the golden age of the imperial court, the Heian period. Massive pillars supported a cavernous chamber topped by a sloping tile roof with stone steps leading into and out of its towering archway. In its heyday, all its wooden surfaces wore a coat of vermilion lacquer. The broad Suzaku Avenue running north from the Rashomon led straight to the gate of the imperial palace where lived the tiny, aesthetically refined fraction of the populace depicted in the country's greatest literary monument, Murasaki Shikibu's The Tale of Genji. Based on a 12th century tale, Akutagawa's retold story is set at the decaying end of the era, when power had largely shifted from the courtiers to the warlords, who would dominate the coming centuries and much of the city, and the gate itself lay in ruins. Uh, So I don't know if that made it clear, but the Rashomon is a gate um, that stands at the entrance of most Japanese cities. It's like the the classic Japanese symbol. Uh, It's multiple stories, very big, um, and it has that sloping roof that people recognize as classically Japanese. Because this is set at like the decaying end of the era of the Heian period, which is like the 12th century uh so the 1100s the gate itself is kind of decaying 
The main character of the short story is a servant who's been let go by his master, uh, essentially due to the economy. It's not super clear, but that's the implication. Uh, the servant is standing under the Rashomon to get out of the rain, and he's just like contemplating how terrible everything is and how he's left with... Uh, his only option left is to become a thief uh, because there's no chance of him getting more employment since nobody can afford to employ everybody. He doesn't really like this idea and he decides to like sleep it off and he goes up to the second floor uh, hoping to find enough shelter to sleep. The Rashomon is falling apart, uh, like I mentioned, and so this great symbol of like respect and prosperity has become a repository for the city's unwanted dead. They actually throw uh, unclaimed corpses on the second floor, which seems like they're making their lives more difficult than necessary. I mean, somebody has to go drag all these unwanted corpses up an entire flight of stairs. But whatever floats your boat, I guess. So anyway, the servant goes up to the second floor and he's just like flabbergasted by all the corpses that are laying there. And he sees movement and it's this old lady who's leaning down over one of the corpses and plucking the hairs from its head. And uh, the imagery is actually super gross here. So let me read you some of it. Moved by six parts terror and four parts curiosity, the servant forgot to breathe for a moment. To borrow a phrase from a writer of old, he felt as if the hairs on his head were growing thick. Then the crone thrust her pine torch between two floorboards and placed both hands on the head of the corpse she had been examining. Like a monkey searching for fleas on its child, she began plucking out the corpse's long hairs, one strand at a time. A hair seemed to slip easily from the scalp with every movement of her hand. Each time a hair gave way, a little of the man's fear disappeared to be replaced by an increasingly violent loathing for the old woman. No, this could be misleading. He felt not so much a loathing for the old woman as a revulsion for all things evil, an emotion that grew in strength with every passing minute. If now someone were to present the slowly fellow again with the choice he had just been mulling beneath the gate, whether to starve to death or turn to thievery. He would probably have chosen starvation without the least regret. So powerfully had the woman's hatred for evil blazed up. Uh, no, so powerfully had the man's hatred for evil blazed up, like the pine torch the old woman had stood between the floorboards. The servant had no idea why the crone was pulling out the dead person's hair, and thus could not rationally call the deed either good or evil. But for him, the very act of plucking hair from a corpse on this rainy night up here in the Rashomon was itself an unpardonable evil. Naturally, he no longer recalled that only moments before he himself had been planning to become a thief. So the servant gets all holier than thou and he grabs the woman and demands that she stop desecrating the dead. And she's like, shit, dude, I swear, I'm just doing what I gotta do. And it turns out she's stealing the hair to make wigs, which she then sells at the market. And she's like, look, this chick, when she was alive, she used to cut up snakes and sell them as fish to the guards. So she would totally get what I'm doing here, bro. Like, we all have to survive, am I right? And the servant, like, considers this for a bit. He has some inner dialogue about it. And then he ends up agreeing to her reasoning. And so he's all like, yep. Got it. In that case, give me your clothes, bitch. I'm going to need them if I want to survive. <laughs> and that's it. The end. Humans are the worst. <laughs> and uh, so in a bamboo grove is not much better. And it's actually 
a lot worse. So this is a short story that's told from a bunch of differing perspectives. Um, it's 10 pages, by the way, as opposed to Rashomon, which was seven. And in, this, uh, in the first part of In a Bamboo Grove, we have a couple witness statements. We have um, this like random guy who's like, I don't know, some guy was found dead. Ooh, scary. And then there's like a priest who's like, yep, definitely a dead guy over there. And then there's a policeman who's all, yeah, it was super duper this criminal I've been chasing for a while uh, who committed the crime and killed this guy. He's just the worst. And now we have him in custody. And I know for sure it's him who killed the man. He's a killer. Done deal. And uh, then an old woman testifies that um, the dead man has a wife. And everyone's like, well, what happened to her? We don't know. She's just missing. Ah. So, uh, you know, we only have three people who actually know what happened. The cot killer, the missing wife, and the dead man. And now we're going to hear from all three of them. So each of them will tell the same story from their own point of view. Uh the criminal goes first. His name is Tajomaru. Uh, so he starts by telling his story. Um, he met the couple when they were walking through the woods, and he was like, damn, this girl's fine. I want her. So he cons both of them into following him down a strange path. He ties the man to a tree, and he gags him, and then he rapes the woman. And... Yes, this story sure does treat rape with an extremely cavalier tone, and I'm super sorry about that. It was unpleasant to read, and I'm going to try not to dwell on it. Um, but anyway, that's the only thing. Th those events are the only things that all three stories agree on. So, um, Tajomaru claims that he was about to leave without killing anyone because he had the woman, so he was happy. Uh, but the woman, like, before he could leave, the woman got up and she was like, look, either you or my husband has to die. She couldn't leave, live with both of them having seen, quote unquote, her shame, gross, and that she would end up staying with whoever lived, which is majorly ew. But anyway, Tajomaru is like, gee, guess I'll go kill the husband. And he does. And then when he turns around, the woman is gone. So... Uh, and then we get to hear the woman's side. It's not really stated how she was found or anything like that, but she's just like crying and telling her part of the story. She says that after Tajomaru left without killing anybody, uh, she ran to her husband, but he was just staring at her with such contempt and disgust in his eyes that she couldn't bear it. And she's so overcome with shame that she thinks the only thing she can do is kill him and and then kill herself. Here's a good reminder that this is Japanese culture and uh, killing yourself after experiencing shame is kind of a thing. Um, she only manages to kill him and then she's overcome with emotion and kind of passes out. Uh, and then like the end of her confession is just tearful crying of like, what is she going to do? How is she going to survive this? Then we get to hear from the husband. Uh, it's coming from beyond the grave through the use of a medium, apparently. So he says that he was trying to tell his wife with his eyes that it's okay. He still loves her even after, quote unquote, her shame. Gross. Uh, but while he's still tied to the tree, 
she turns to Tajomaru and is like, hmm, that was hot. Let's run away together, which is extremely gross. Uh, anyway, the husband tries to beg for her to stay again with his eyes, but she just pieces out with the criminal. And then he gets loose enough to throw himself on his own dagger because he's just so horrified and ashamed by what he saw. The end. Humanity is the worst. <laughs> so that was so icky. Uh, let's jump into the next segment, what I baked. And a bit later, I'll tell you uh, why Haruki Murakami thinks these works are classics. So normally this is the part where I tell you about what I baked with recipes and the oven and my mixer and all that fancy stuff. But as you can probably hear, I am sick. I have been sick for about six days now and it is killing me. Um, I had actually bought matcha thinking I'd bake some matcha macarons or maybe a matcha ice cream. But I just don't have the energy. I spent three of the last six days basically lying in bed. I did watch Good Omens. It was amazing, finally. I know, late to the party. And not even the thought of matcha deliciousness could get me up out of bed. <laughs> Why matcha? Well, it's the most Japanese food I could think of that I could actually use in baking. Um, matcha is basically powdered green tea. It's like a super concentrated uh, green tea and it's a very particular flavor. You either love matcha or you hate it and I personally love it. I love matcha green tea ice cream. I love matcha lattes. It's just one of my favorite flavors. Um, I know a lot of people don't really get the green tea thing but I am a sucker for it. Since I needed to bake something for this podcast, and I didn't want to just keep delaying the episode, I decided to do the simplest thing I could think of, which is making a drink. Not the alcoholic kind, just the sort of lame, I'm too sick to use an oven kind. So I poured myself a cup of milk, I added a spoonful of matcha, a spoonful of sugar, and a few drops of vanilla. I whisked it all together until the matcha was pretty much dissolved, and uh, it tasted like melted green tea ice cream. Um... Does this count as a success? I didn't get hurt. I did drink the whole cup. You know what? Yeah, I'm going to count it as a baking win. This is my podcast. And I can do what I want. <laughs> um, now for my favorite segment, the best academic paper titles. Um, quite a few of these were actually about the um, Kurosawa film, but since the film wouldn't exist without the stories, I figure that counts. Ethno-methodology and the Rashomon problem. Ethno-methodology is one of those incredibly long words that I just love because it sounds so freaking academic. Where the human heart goes astray. Rashomon, boomtown, and subjective experience. Sounds interesting. The Rashomon effect, combining positivist and interpretivist approaches in the analysis of contested events. And then finally, this one's great. What is the quality of quality of medical care measures? Rashomon-like relativism and real-world applications. I love quality of quality of. That's just fantastic to have in your paper title. Um, so normally this is a segment where I describe why this is a classic, but since this is a Japanese classic, and to be honest, not a lot of people who aren't film buffs seem to have heard of it. I thought I would let Haruki Murakami tell us about it instead. 
Uh, Murakami is a famous contemporary Japanese novelist whose books are international bestsellers. He writes really surreal, dark fiction like, here's a sad story about a sad man in a sad bar and also everyone's a fish or something. Uh, I haven't read them, but you get the gist. Anyway, he wrote the intro to this particular collection of uh, Akutagawa stories and oh boy, does he have some things to say. So normally, when you read an introduction about a classic author, you get a bunch of words about how they changed the literary canon and how much they influenced everything that came after them, etc., etc. It's like extended cheerleading, basically. Well, not Murakami. Oh, no. Murakami is not afraid to drag the hell out of Akutagawa. Now, he does start by saying that Akutagawa is one of the seminal writers of early modern Japan, and I actually really like how he describes the classics. I think it sums up what I am actually trying to do with this podcast. So let me read you that. Surely in all nations, in all cultures, there exists this kind of basic cultural realm that functions almost subliminally. England has Dickens and Shakespeare, and the United States Melville and Fitzgerald, among others. The French have Balzac and Flaubert. The works of these national writers are imprinted in the hearts and minds of each individual citizen during youth, in forms that take on a nearly absolute authority, and, before anyone is aware of it, they go on to comprise a common perception of literature and culture in the region, i.e. a common identity. These works are handed down from teacher to pupil, from parent to child, almost without question, like DNA. They are memorized, recited, discussed in book reports, included in university entrance exams, and once the student has grown up, they become a source for quotation. They are made into movies again and again. They are parodied, and inevitably they become the object of ambitious young writers' revolt and contempt. Finally, each becomes an autonomous sign or symbol or metaphor that functions much like the national flag or the national anthem or one of the country's primary landscapes, say, in the case of Japan, Mount Fuji or cherry blossoms. And of course, for better or worse, each becomes an indispensable part of our culture. For without the creation of such archetypes, without such subliminal imprinting, it is almost impossible for us to possess a common cultural awareness. Um, I really love those paragraphs because this is part of why, one, why I've avoided reading the classics because I am that young rebellious upstart writer who scorns them. And I've realized that I want to have more understanding of this cultural identity that I've avoided uh, delving into for so long. Um, So I just thought that was really great way of describing what classics even are like what that means to people and to culture anyway so um murakami agrees that akutagawa is part of the japanese national identity he gives him credit for his earlier works saying that he had a particularly unique voice and that's something you'll hear a lot about akutagawa like everyone talks about his voice um uh and how unique it is Um, And he even does say that uh, Akutagawa belongs in a top 10 list of Japan's best writers. Not in the top two spots. Maybe not even in the top five. But he is up there. Murakami then tries to name the other people who would end up on that list, but he can only come up with eight more names, which is pretty shady. (laughs) 
And uh, then he starts to go on about how Kutagawa lost his voice and his way in his middle years. And how he just started to like really suck and he never made his way back to his voice. And he suggests that knowledge of his own inadequacy was a likely factor in his death by suicide, which is serious yikes, like too far. So that's what Murakami has to say. Thank you, sir, for that illuminating uh, introduction. In American pop culture, the Rashomon effect has come to be synonymous with stories being told from multiple multiple perspectives where the facts don't quite line up and there's no clear way to discern the truth. Uh, this is probably more directly thanks to the Kurosawa film, but we wouldn't have the film without the stories. For recommendations, I'm actually going to give you Murakami's list of great Japanese authors first, and then I'll give you some of my favorite stories about uh, Japanese history, which diverge in uh, subject matter from Akutagawa's realm. On the list with Akutagawa would be such figures as Natsume Soseki, Morio Gai, Shimazaki Tosan, Shiga Naoya, Tanizaki Junichiro, and the 1968 Nobel Prize winner Kawabata Yasunari. Less certain of a place might be Dazai Osamu and Mishima Yukio. Soseki would unquestionably come out on the top. This totals only nine. I can't think of a good candidate for 10th place. Uh, you can start there if you want the full Japanese cultural experience. Uh, my personal fascination with Japanese history has actually been more geisha than samurai or feudalism or any of that stuff. So if you want to read about the historical Japan that fascinated me when I was younger, uh, you can start with, our, with Arthur Golden's Memoirs of a Geisha, but do keep in mind that this is a white man who wrote it as sort of a sensationalized story after um, an anthropological interview with a famous geisha, and he did use parts of it without her consent. Uh, if you want that geisha story in her own words, you should read Geisha A Life by Mineko Iwasaki. It is a beautiful and haunting memoir. And then the book Geisha by Liza Dalby is also amazing. And she is one of only seven foreign women who was ever permitted to work as an actual geisha. Uh, she's an anthropologist and her studies into the geisha hierarchy were just fascinating when I was younger. This week's expert baking tip brought to you by Denise. When making a cheesecake, your cream cheese must be room temperature. Whipping cold cream cheese will give your cheesecake a texture not unlike cottage cheese. You're welcome. <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Astute Macaron despite my terrible voice this week. Uh, if you made it this far, please subscribe. Ooh, wow. If you made it this far, please subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast listening app of choice. If you make something actually interesting with matcha powder, please send me pictures on Twitter or Instagram at Astute Macaron. And remember, macaron is spelled with one O. If you spell it with two O's, a bitter servant will steal your clothes while acting morally superior about it. Uh, you can email your baking tips or questions to astutemacaronpod at gmail.com. 
for pictures of my bakes and recipe links. You can follow me on social media or head to the website astutemacaron.weebly.com. Weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can set up a small recurring monthly donation at patreon.com slash astutemacaron. Your donations go towards hosting fees, equipment maintenance, and ingredients. And in return, you get some cool perks such as month, such as a monthly newsletter or even a fancy bookmark. Until next time, keep reading, keep baking, and you'll be one apt pocky.